Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Those of you new here this morning or are new just joining us online, uh, we've been doing a sermon series uh, following a streaming series. It's the first ever streaming series to follow the life and works of Jesus Christ in uh, multiple episodes, and it's called The Chosen. Our sermon series isn't exactly following it. Uh, we're talking about who is the chosen one, and then asking and answering the question, what does it mean and why has he chosen you? And uh, today our passage of scripture is in John chapter four. Uh, that's what we were just watching, was John chapter four, verses one through 26. We won't read all of those verses, you've just watched them. Uh, I encourage you to read each one on your own. We're gonna be focusing in on verse 23, and as we look at that, I wanna ask you a question. What are you seeking? Uh, when you came here today, maybe you were seeking hot dogs, and so you came up and we gave you some hot dogs, or maybe you're seeking something different at church, and you know, we'll dive into this message, and we get to the passage, and five, 10 minutes in, maybe you'll start scrolling on your phone, I'm sure you're digging into the scriptures and another passage, and totally understand that, but maybe you're on Instagram, or Grubhub, or checking your 401k, I don't know what you're doing, but when you're doing all those things, what are you seeking? Whether it's, you know, Match.com or Facebook or Grubhub or whichever app you're using, what are you seeking? Like, I know, I'm trying to get a sandwich or I'm trying to get a date or I'm, trying, I'm just looking at how my friends are doing. It's like, yeah, but what are you seeking? And what we're going to see in the passage today, and, and maybe you picked it up uh, when Jesus said it in that dramatization of the passage, uh, is that God's actually seeking. And he's seeking a specific kind of worshiper. He calls a true worshiper, which implies there's a false worshiper. And so as we talk about God seeking a true worshiper, the question I want you to ask yourself is simply this, am I who he's seeking? Are you the kind of worshiper that God is seeking? John chapter four, uh, the context for John chapter four is John chapter two. John chapter two, uh, Jesus does his first miracle in the gospel of John. He goes to a party and we saw that Jesus loves parties, amen? All right, if you hate parties, probably going to hate our church, but we're glad you're here uh, today. Uh, so <laughs> probably won't be back next week, but whatever. Um, John chapter two, we saw Jesus at those parties, and then a couple weeks ago, we saw he was at Matthew's house at a party with these uh, tax collectors and prostitutes and murderers, and, and the first miracle he does in the gospel of John, he's at this wedding. There was a woman I met in the first service. Uh, when I met her, the person who brought her up to me said, this lady came all the way from Ireland to see you. And I was like, what? I like, seriously? She goes, well, actually she was here for a wedding and she thought she'd come to church. I was like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. If you've been to a wedding, you know it's a, a time of celebration. And Jesus turned water to wine and he did a miracle that not everybody at the wedding understood or realized even happened. Most people thought the wine was provided by the host of the wedding. But the people that were serving and his disciples saw that he had done this miracle and they believed. They responded. So they, there was a revelation of God and they reacted to that revelation. And, and then Jesus goes to church. And this should be a confrontation. Uh, some of you are elders uh, that I see in here and, and they're pastors and some of my pastor friends watch online. And he experienced church quite a bit different than many of the leaders today do. And so this isn't a confrontation really to you as a congregation, but uh, church, we can be so pathetic as uh, church leaders we just want to just come to church. We just, we'll beg you to come to church. Come on Easter, we're gonna have a raffle. And if you're a big church, we're giving away a car. If you're a small church, we're giving away a PlayStation. Like here it is. Jesus goes to church and he kicks people out. <laughs> he starts overturning the tables at the temple and he says, uh, I'm not a consumer Christ and you've made my father's house into a place that's a marketplace. That's sickening to me, go home. My father's house is a house of prayer. The religious people are mad. 
And then he does some miracles and people start trusting in him. But then John chapter two, verse 24 and 25 set up all the stuff that we were looking at right now and what's been coming after that is that Jesus knows what's in a man. John chapter two, verse 24 says this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. So they've trusted him right before that. So he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he did no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. Then John chapter three, Jesus has an encounter with a man. And he's the opposite of the woman you just saw in that video in every way. He's a socialite. He's somebody that everybody would want to come to their house, not somebody that would avoid people because of living in shame. Uh, He's a scholar. He's educated. He's wealthy. uh, He's one of the elite. And he comes at night, which is interesting because the woman comes at noon, middle of the day, and we know that John has a light and darkness. If you've been with us in the series theme that's happening, he leaves apparently still in darkness, although eventually comes to Jesus. And she leaves in the light, telling others about Jesus. There's a contrast that's happening uh, between these two passages. And then at the end of John chapter three, and we'll talk more about this, maybe next week, um, maybe in the future, um, the Pharisees are causing division because of Jesus' success. That's interesting. (laughs) He's baptizing people, and they start using it against him. And Jesus isn't afraid of confrontation, but right time, right place, now's not the time. So he leaves and he goes to Samaria. There's an interesting word we will talk about next week, not as much this week, we're in John chapter four for a little while. But it said that Jesus had to go to Samaria. But we know geographically there are about four, maybe five options of different ways he could have gotten where he was going without going to Samaria. It's what scholars call divine necessity. God had a divine appointment with this woman at this well at this moment. And I think he probably has one for us today too. I said we wouldn't go through every part, but just kind of a summary, and if you've got your Bibles, you can skim through it yourself. Um, At the beginning of the passage, Jesus is at a well. He's sitting down. Notice that he's tired. Uh, Verse six, he's wearied. He's wearied, uh, but the disciples go grocery shopping. Some of you are in leadership positions. You know that they can be more tiring than it is for the followers. Uh, Yes, he's getting credit and excitement when he's doing these miracles and teaching, but then he's also got the opposition that he's dealing with, and he's kind of the tip of the spear. Then a woman Verse seven is being pointed out. This would be an alert to the reader from Samaria. Whoa, double warning. Something's about to happen here. And uh, then you find out the first statement that's given about Jesus. He's a Jew. Okay. And then he calls himself living water. If you're skimming through this, she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? I loved that thing. I knew him. I know him. Yeah. It's a long time ago, in case you didn't know. Um, Then he talks about the living water and then He confronts her sin, and here's one of the reasons to praise Jesus today as we talk about worship. Uh, He's confronting her sin not in order to condemn her, but to cleanse her. Some of you, um, you hide things about yourself because you think if anyone else knew, they would reject you. Um, Some of you are not here right now because you think, oh, I couldn't go there. Um, Jesus isn't confronting her to condemn her, but he does confront her sin. But he's doing it because he wants to cleanse her. And then this is what we're going to focus in on today. And so I'm going to start reading verse 19, uh, the section where they have this conversation about worship. Because so what she does is she grabs a religious conversation, tries to change, the, change what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about her sin. Remember, she said, I don't have a husband, which could have meant she's a widow. Could have meant she's never been married. It's true what she says. But like a lot of us who hide our stuff, it's not all of the truth. And Jesus says, I want to know all of you. And so we're going to get to all of the truth. You're right in saying you don't have a husband. You've had five. You're shacking up with a guy right now. 
And then she says, so about um, worship, what, should I go to the Baptist church or the Nazarene church? <laughs> uh, which, uh, maybe she's in real estate. Location, location, location. Which mountain are we supposed to be hanging out on? Look what she says. So he's just confronted her sin. <laughs> then she says, sir, I perceive you know a lot of stuff. You're a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers, and now she's alluding to, there's been about, uh, when you talk about being Jew and Samaritan, there's a racial tension that's been going on here for a couple hundred years. And this is one of the religious arguments they've been having. So this is not a personal thing for her. This is a, like a hot topic. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, Jesus didn't say that. She's just stereotyping him. Jews say this thing. But Jesus responds for himself. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour, or some of your translators say the time, the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he confronts her on this. You worship what you do not know. <laughs> oh, man, that's significant. Because here's what the Samaritans did. The Samaritans edited their Bible. They only had the first five books. They, they went Thomas Jefferson. Uh, 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 about two or three weeks ago, a bunch of people were offended because I confronted uh, Democrats for voting for abortion. And people were upset and they wrote me. What I didn't tell you is like about two or three weeks before that, uh, several Republicans were mad because I said Thomas Jefferson wasn't a Christian, which I was offended by, just so you know, since I can't email everyone in the church and go, I'm offended. Here you go. I'm offended that you're mad that I was trying to tell you, you worship a false Jesus and you're concerned about the salvation of Thomas Jefferson. Did you know him? <laughs> I'm telling you, I think you might be going to hell. <laughs> so... At any rate, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman, um, you're going to hell and you're talking to me about worship. I'm looking for true worshipers and you ain't one of them is what he's saying to her. Because you've edited your Bible, you're not even in the stream of truth. I was talking to a Jewish guy yesterday. Some Jewish people believe that the gospel of John is anti-Semitic, is against Jews because at the end it's really clear who's calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. But look what Jesus says here. He says, you worship, verse 22, to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. He's not saying all Jews are going to heaven or they're in right relationship with God. He's just, we got the truth. We're in the stream of truth here. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is a Jewish man. It's a Jewish Bible. The roots of Christianity are Jewish. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not one or the other. It's one thing together. Both. For the Father is seeking. If you underline in your Bible, I'd underline that. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. And now here's a revelation of who God is. God is spirit. That means you would never know him if he doesn't reveal himself. You can't see him. You will not understand this. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. And then John tells us, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That was Jesus declaring himself God, really clearly. And so here you've got this passage of scripture where she wants to talk about worship. Jesus is trying to get to her heart. He's not concerned with the location. It's not about Mount Gerizim, not about Jerusalem, not about your methods and modes and denominations and all those types of things, online, in person. Not talking about that stuff. Hymns, course. Nope. The essence of what it means to worship, and he's going to the heart. 
Truth matters. You can't just be sincere. But if you just have the truth, there's a lot of people who worship him with the truth, with their lips, that are Jews. See Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And sphere and truth, that's the kind of worshiper that God is seeking. Now, I've got to pause before we can jump into the text and really start unpacking the text. I've got a friend, saw him before the service, he was, was a, as an elder here at our church, um, was a communications major at NC State. And he tells me every once in a while after a sermon, I don't think that went the way you thought it was going to go. It's often, actually. As an NC State, and sometimes it's about a sermon, sometimes it's about an, I can make an announcement. And he's like, yeah, I don't think they heard what you meant for them to hear. And he says this phrase, he says, communication is a receiver phenomenon. Because I'll oftentimes say to him, well, I said, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Here's what they heard. Okay. So when I say worship, I know that, I don't know how many people are in this room right now, a few hundred people, you may have a few thousand different definitions. <laughs> And they're all out there. So what does it even mean to worship? I'll share a couple uh, from guys that I trust and, and they've said some good things about this. And, and if you like one, you can take a picture. It'll be up on the screen. A.W. Tozer says, true worship is to be so personally and hopelessly in love with God that the idea of a transfer of affection never even remotely exists. And some of you have felt that, you know, in, a, in your relationship with your spouse. Like, I would never even think about it because you're so in love. Arthur Pink, Bible scholar, commentator, he says this, worship, he's talking about it, is a redeemed heart occupied with God, expressing itself in adoration and thanksgiving. I think that one's a little too narrow in the way he says that, but I get what he's getting at. And so, but some definitions, they try to give you everything under the sun and every expression of a service and all these things. And, and there's a few categories of people in my experience in life that really they value confusing people. <laughs> Doctors, lawyers, really wordy, pastors, and anybody in a technical field. <laughs> and so they'll give you some like 45 word definite, you're like, what are we even talking about anymore by the time they're done with the thing? I really like it um, when you can keep it simple. You know when you hear a meteorologist, clear skies, that means there's no clouds. Or Meteorologically, there are no hindrances to thou's vision as you're walking through, whether it be gust of wind or debris or fog or, okay. So it's not cloudy? Okay. <laughs> Louis Giglio wrote a book about 20 years ago. It's called The Air I Breathe. It's a really short book and there's not very many words on each page. You could probably read it uh, if you get home from church today at 1230, probably read it before the game start. <laughs> and he defines worship as this, is our response to what we value most. He says, worship is our response to what we value most. Okay, so we know what worship is. By that definition, every human being that's ever existed is a worshiper. I don't need to give you a hundred examples. Go to the symphony, go to a music you know, or art exhibit or go to a, um, whether it's a concert or a sporting event or whatever, like show all these things. I can give you like lots of examples of that. Uh, you don't need to do that. Here's the deal, just think about this. There are signs in your life that point you to what you worship. My role is not to convince you, I'm not a salesperson, I'm not to condemn you, uh, I'm not your moral judge, uh, I'm not here to like encourage you in the sense of like, you're doing great, don't worry about it. Everybody makes mistakes, you know. No, I'm just like a mirror, I'm just gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you these things, you decide where they point. You and the Lord can talk about this. 
So it's kind of like if you go to buy, you ever go to buy like a department store where they don't work on commission and you try on an outfit and you're like, does this look good? That's awkward. <laughs> so they work on commission, you expect them to say yes. If not, you're like, oh, this could be really, I don't even know you, you're about to hurt my feelings. <laughs> Just a mirror. The pointers in your life are things like this. Your affection, your money, your time, and your attention. Those things will point you down a path. At the end of that path, you will find what you value the most. You can argue, but the path doesn't lie to you. It's not emotional. You might get emotional, but it's just facts. So you look at those things, they point to what you value most, and we all worship. If at the end of that path, you have God himself, that's a true worshiper. If you have anything else, the Bible calls you an idolater. So what about you? Are you the kind he's seeking? And, and with that definition, it becomes really clear in our passage. It talks about worshiping in truth, that God reveals truth to us. The question is, how do we respond to that truth? Because everybody doesn't respond rightly. Demons in the Bible have all the facts right about Jesus. They are not worshiping. And so our first point, I'm just going to phrase kind of off of Louis Giglio's uh, definition there, and, and some of you get the small group study, so I'm trying to say it the right way. Uh, true worshipers have a right reaction to God's revelation. True worshipers have a right reaction to God's revelation. And when I talk about God's revelation, I mean his revelation of himself. And so we dive into this passage of scripture and it's pretty incredible who this woman is and, and that she comes to the well and we talk about the time of day that she comes, talk about travel to Samaria, talk about all those things, but I don't want you to miss the main point of this passage is not this woman's conversion. Her conversion is incredible. Every, every time somebody turns from darkness to light, from death to life, like every time somebody is not alive spiritually and they come alive, that's a miracle. We see it at Southbridge. We had a guy uh, sitting right here about three weeks ago, trusted Christ. Had a woman who had come to church for the first time in a long time, was a guest about two weeks ago, I think it was, and she trusted Christ. Like we have, we have that. Pray for those people. This woman, incredible conversion. But that's not what the passage is about. It's about Jesus revealing to us who God is. Because remember, that's why he came. John chapter 1. Verses one through five, he created everything. He is God. Then verse 14, pretty controversial, he became flesh. Why? Why did Jesus make his crib our community? <laughs> A couple of people told me they don't like when you say, he pitched his tents. Okay, all right. Well, I'll come up with some new phraseology for you. Keep it fresh. He's got a crib in your community. He's hanging out here. The Bible says he tabernacled with us. He dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. Why? Verse 18, nobody's ever seen God. But if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus' God became flesh. And then John tells us why he wrote the book of John. And he didn't just write a book because he was like, you know what, I had some pretty cool experiences with Jesus and I'm going to tell people about that. <laughs> And then like the best stories that he could come up with, he tells us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, exactly why he wrote this book. John chapter 20, verse 30 says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. In other words, I saw them. I know there's a bunch of stuff I could tell you about, which are not written in this book. So I didn't write that stuff down. But these are written, here's the reason, so that you, 
Not because they, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen? So we know, this isn't like, you don't have to debate this. You can say whatever, everybody has an opinion about stuff, but the Bible is real clear. This passage isn't about this woman's conversion. It's not about her believing. It's written so that you would believe. And Jesus is here to reveal who God is. Our reaction to that revelation is part of what it means to worship in truth. To be a true worshiper, true worshipers react rightly to God's revelation about himself. And so you think about how he's revealed himself in this passage of scripture. And you see there's a process that happens here. And so you walk back through this passage. You go, he's sitting on this well. Why is he sitting on the well? He tells us in verse 6, he's weary. (laughs) Can anyone here relate? Anybody here tired? Hmm? That's why I'm at second service. I'll go to second service. Maybe you're physically tired. Maybe you're tired of other people. And so that's why you stay at home. Just kidding. Just picking on you. Maybe they're sitting next to you today and you're like, oh, they sat in the same aisle. It's your spouse. But whatever. <laughs> you know, you get tired, like, you're tired emotionally. You get tired spiritually. You get tired of the media. You get tired of arguments. You get tired of work. You get tired of your boss. You get tired of all this stuff. You get, Jesus knows what that's like. And he's more tired than his disciples. They go get groceries. He sits at the well. He's all by himself. Not only did Jews not like Samaritans, men didn't speak to women in public. Not even to your spouse in public. And this woman comes to the well. She thinks Jesus is blocking what she's seeking. And the reality is Jesus is everything she's ever been seeking. So I asked you when you're on Grubhub and whatever apps you use, what are you seeking? Well, the prophet Jeremiah confronts the false prophets of his day and says, you guys give people false hope because you tell them there's hope, there's no hope. You're like cisterns, broken wells. They don't hold water. Some of you have experienced that. You get a little filled up and then it's all gone. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is the living water. And so he tells this woman who's come to the well, it's an analogy of water. And there's this tendency for people as they encounter Jesus when he talks about earthly things to not realize he's teaching them spiritual truths and they get stuck on the earthly thing. And, and for her, living water just meant moving water. Moving water was a type of water. A stream or a spring. And, and they're at this well. This is a unique well. It's Jacob's well. We know where this well is located. We also know there are other well opportunities for this woman closer to her town. She's going out of her way. John tells us it's the sixth hour, which would be noon. It's the hottest time of day in the Middle East. Why is she traveling out of her way? Shame. She's alone. She's intentionally avoiding people. And we know because when Jesus confronts her sin, it's because of her sin and her reputation. And so sin isolates. We've talked about this before. Isolation leads to deception. Deception leads to destruction. So she's in that process. She's isolated. She's believing things about herself, probably about God, other people that aren't true. And she comes alone. Jesus confronts her sin. Not to condemn her. And then eventually he reveals himself as the sin cleanser. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Her response is pretty incredible. Those very people she was hiding from, she runs and says to them, not, check me out, I'm awesome now because I met Jesus. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. He told me everything I ever did. So that, that clip, you know, that's, that's why we started doing this series. Was I, saw, I wasn't watching, sorry, Dallas Jenkins, I know you did a statement to our church last week. You're awesome. We love you. I wasn't watching The Chosen. 
And just so y'all know, like I know you tell me stuff, I usually hate Christian stuff. Like this is so cheesy, like the Christian movies and things like that. And so you're like, you haven't seen this? And you know, whatever giants are out there and stuff. I'm like I've read David, I got it. And so people would be like, you gotta watch the chosen. I'm like, ah, I'm good. I got the gospels, we're okay. And uh, I was scrolling through social media and I saw this clip that we watched today from John chapter four. I'm balling. I've studied John chapter four. John chapter four, I was my senior project in college. Like I felt like I got a good grasp of John chapter four. When, when he started to list the names of the men, I was, it was over because I was seeing what it's like to be fully known and fully loved. No need to hide. He already knows everything, and he loves you. And he, John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, John three seventeen. I didn't come in the world to condemn the world, but then three eighteen, the world's already condemned if they reject me, because you've chosen to stay in darkness. Condemn yourself, but cleansing's offered. Wide invitation, but the road is narrow. That's the problem. Not many people take it. Can you imagine for this woman, after that experience, then going, this is the, Messiah, the one we've been waiting for? The revealing of the character? Because you think about what Revelation is. And I've got this package up here. Some of you wonder what's going on here. What's this prize? You ever watch a game show and uh, somebody wins some prizes, but then it gets to the point where it's like, all right, you can take what you got and go home. Or after commercial break. <laughs> so, you know, you come here, James, I think you said you're kind of going with me. So let's say James came to church today and this is not church, it's a game show. And I'm like, well, what's the streaming series that we've been watching, James? The Chosen, $1,000 for James. Not true, just an analogy, by the way. <laughs> what passage of scripture are we in today, James? Uh-oh. <laughs> he got it. She's telling him. Call, phone a friend. She told you. John chapter 4. Here we go. $5,000. He's in. It's like, and after a commercial break, James is going to have a chance to perhaps win a million dollars. Or he can take his $5,000 home. And so we come back and I sell you some, you know, detergent or whatever. And then, and then it uh, comes in here. All right, James. And we recap. And then just wait, you know, 30 minutes of just like three seconds of things or whatever. And here we go. Um, behind this, but you don't know what it is. You can have it if you'll put this on the line. And it's like, you can keep your five grand or... And you don't know what this is until I unveil it, until I pull it off. That's revelation. You don't know what it was until it's revealed to you. Could be a block of rotten cheese. Fruitcake, probably likely. You guys, I've been stocking that stuff up. It could be a vacation for two to some crazy place worth way more than $5,000. But you just don't know. It could be a million dollar check, but they're usually wider than that. But still, you don't know until I pull the thing off there. And so Jesus, she didn't know who Jesus, Jesus, the Savior of the world, sitting in front of her. She doesn't know. Can you imagine what it was like when, she, when he, her eyes were open, when the curtain was pulled back? That's revelation. Revelation is simply the act of something being revealed. It's being unveiled to you. So how many of you, have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Who here has seen that show? Oh, okay, good. A good percentage of y'all. Um, I usually just watch stuff y'all send me, other than the Christian movies. And then... Uh, and then I'll go searching for stuff. So I don't really just like sit down and like flip through the channels and watch TV, but I was traveling with my, my wife and one of my kids. We're in a hotel room and it's like, how do I find something that they want to watch? And it's not like people crying on Lifetime and like notes and stuff. Like how, I want to watch it too, but they don't want to see people being shot. And so what do we get here? And so I saw this show, Undercover Boss. And the premise for those of you who haven't seen it usually is that the CEO takes an entry level job and their company. 
and then they find out what do people really think of the company and of them. I watched the first celebrity edition, and the guy that was on the show was Darius Rucker. You guys know Darius Rucker? The song, you know, Wagon Wheel, If I Die in Raleigh, I Will Die Free. I was telling my kids, I was like, I knew him before that. I only want to be with you. He's a rocker. And it's like, Hootie and the Blowfish. That's not Post Malone, kids, by the way. Go look that up. They stole that, just so you know, but whatever. Now because Pokemon, Hootie, anyway. Uh-uh. So um, I'm watching the show. And uh, Darius Rucker's on there. He's pretending to be a 62-year-old music teacher who's a roadie at an open mic night, and he wants to break into the music industry. And I think we got a picture of his costume. So that's him on the left, and the right is a guy named Jackie, the character that he's playing. And there's a couple that's supposed to come mentor him and teach him how to get into the music industry. And what oftentimes happens in the show, apparently, is that you make a connection with somebody's story. This couple, uh, the wife had an addiction because after... Uh, postpartum situation. She got hooked on painkillers and they wrote this song called Addiction. He really connected with them and ends up revealing that he's not Jackie. He's Darius Rucker and he hands them two Gibson guitars and a $20,000 scholarship to this music school in Hollywood. And can you imagine the reaction? <laughs> Even if you haven't seen the episode, like, whoa, why are you you and we're telling you? <laughs> and Jesus is not a CEO or a celebrity. He's the Messiah. And he wants you to know what it's like to be fully known and fully loved by him and what he's doing through this passage. And you walk through it and you go, he's revealing himself. Just, just if you have your Bibles or you're not scrolling in a different passage right now, uh, you, you scroll through and just see. So it, he starts off in, in verse seven, and verse nine, that he's a Jew. That's who, he, that's who she says he is. And then Jesus starts to do his thing. Remember his thing? He's revealing who God is. John chapter 1, verse 18. So verse 9, a Samaritan woman said to him, how is that you, a Jew, implied a man? So contrast, I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman, you're a Jew, you're a man. Ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. Okay. What did Jesus come to do again? Reveal to us who God is. So verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God. <laughs> and it's tied so closely to John chapter 3 that you'd think John wrote this for a reason. <laughs> and he doesn't say the exact same thing to this woman that he said to Nicodemus, but he's saying the exact same thing to this woman that he said to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave. He's a gift giver. What did he give? His son. What does Jesus say here? If you knew the gift of God. Some of you are really bothered that I never pulled this off. Here we go. How's that for you? <laughs> Not cheese or fruitcake. Sorry to disappoint, those of you who are hoping. He's the gift. Look at what he says next. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him, and he would have, because he's a giver, would have given you living water. It's this living water. Okay, he talks to her about this. She buys in. So he's, re- he's revealing he is the gift of God. She says he's a Jew and a man. Verse 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water that I will give him, never thirst again. The water I will give him become in him, well up in him, bubble up in him to eternal life. Hmm. She asked, are you greater than Jacob? So she's going, all right, Jewish man, greater than Jacob? He's going, yep, greater than Jacob. Living water, the gift of eternal life. You picking up what I'm putting down? She's not. So... He confronts her sin, verse 16. 
She says he's a prophet. Interesting thing about the Samaritans, not only that they were not in the stream of truth because they edited their Bible like Thomas Jefferson, but they didn't believe in Isaiah. They didn't believe in the prophets. What is she saying when she says he's a prophet? There's a prophet that's mentioned in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Moses says there's going to be a prophet like me that God's going to raise up. That's a pointer to the Messiah, the Christ. She's kind of saying, are, are you him? Are, are you the guy? There's one prophet they believe in. And Jesus is going, now you're starting to get it. Verse 24, after they have their conversation about worship, Jesus says, God is spirit. I'm revealing to you who he is. Now I'm sitting here in the flesh. God, you wouldn't know him if I didn't reveal him. In verse 26, he says, and the word he is not in the original, I am. That's him proclaiming himself to be God. And Jews understood this. Samaritans had the first five books of the Bible. And Exodus, that's Genesis, Exodus, the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter three, Moses at a burning bush. He says to God, what's your name? Who is it that I should say is telling me to go to these people? And God says, I am. And so they know. God refers to himself. He says, I am. John's really interesting because if you go through here, anybody who ever thought to themselves, well, Jesus didn't claim to be God. John chapter 4, right here, he says, I am. I am the Messiah. He's telling it to the Samaritan woman. Jews aren't ready for this yet. Remember, the, his own are going to reject him. In, ver, in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 10, I am the door. Also in chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. Well, in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. He's being really clear, I'm God. In fact, really interesting, if you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, so some people say there's only seven I am statements in John. They're wrong. Uh, I'm just giving you eight, and there's a ninth. When they come to arrest Jesus, they say, we've come for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am, and they fall down. That's different than uh, Bueller, anyone here. Like, he's going, I, I'm God. Whoa. Jesus was a bad dude. They fell down. He said, I am. But they arrested him and crucified him. See, knowing the truth, everyone doesn't, react rightly. She does. She doesn't go, well, tell me some other I am statements. Are you sure? Let's test. Is She's hearing like when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this woman who's come in shame, she's experienced freedom from her sin and forgiveness, and she runs to the other town, and she says, you come and see him. Mm. And what we see here, talk about truth, is our reaction to his revelation. Talk about heart, spirit, Soul, yeah, it's fueled by forgiveness. True worshipers are fueled by their forgiveness. And so here you've got this woman who was hiding in shame. She could have gone to another well. You've got this woman who comes at noon. She's coming at noon because she's trying to avoid people. We know uh, that wells at this time, it was a social gathering place for women. Now that sounds like it's, you know, you know, sexist of some sort. No, women were outcast socially then. A task that was reserved just for women was to go and get water. It wasn't a difficult task, but it was an opportunity for women to connect. 
And so they, it'd be like the equivalent of going to a coffee shop today. Or it'd be like this. Like, you know, you go to Jubala or Sola. It's kind of like these are like hangout, social connecting places. But she's going, I'm not going to those places. I'm going to walk to Garner. There's got to be a Starbucks in Garner. Like she's going out of her way to go further away from where her town is at a time of day when it's most likely no one's going to be there. And not only is somebody there, it's a guy. And he's talking to me. I've got enough pain from men in my life, if you're her. And he's a Jew. He's here to judge me. I know what Jews think of Samaritans. We'll talk more about that next week. It's terrible. They'd pray that they wouldn't go to heaven. And then he's not that. Not this Jew. Not this man. He's different. Every pointer in her life that showed her what she worshipped, it was a, a broken bucket of men. She thought men would fill her soul. And they always left her empty. But here's this man. The God man. And so what happens is this forgiveness in her life fuels she is a different person. It's almost like spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. Is that like weird? I don't know how that happens, but she's getting so changed that she's got to go tell other people about it. But before that, think about where she was at because this is where some of us are at. She's hiding in isolation. Now, some of you, you're not like me. You're physically here. You talk to people and they see stuff about you, but we live in a culture of hiding. There was an MIT researcher uh, who wrote a book called Alone Together, and we're going to put a quote by her up on the screen. And just ask yourself, again, a mirror, not telling you this has to be true of you. But ask yourself, you, can you identify with this? Sherry Turkle says this, we are lonely but fearful of intimacy. So in other words, we want to be connected, but we're afraid of being connected. Digital connections and the social robot may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Think about that. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. I can identify with that one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And here's something I want to just teach you so this is true for our church and our church culture. Um, When you see people isolating themselves, that's bad. And so, you know, there was all the debate when online church uh, became popular for almost every church of like, why should you go to church in person? And once you do that, and people are quoting Hebrews chapter 10, don't forsake the assembly of believers. And you're like, well, we're assembled online. And so it's like, yeah, all that's true. But here's the deal. You see things in people's lives by seeing them regularly, what's going on. And when people pull themselves away from community, it's not good for them. Believers and non-believers, by the way. But here in this church, just candidly, some of you won't be here in a year. And it's not because you went to another church or you moved out of town. You left Jesus. Intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know. But it will happen. The signs of that early, so this is warning, warning, warning. The signs of that early are you start to pull away from the people who might call you out on that. And so if you see people doing that on social media, confront them because you care. They might unfriend you. It's happened to me. I totally get it. But hopefully someday they come back and go, but you actually cared. And it, there are people here right now that that's going to happen to. I'm just giving you a heads up. Did, you, did your parents teach you about stranger danger when you were kids? Raise your hand. Is that just a Michigan thing? I don't just talk fast. Like there's cultural things that are weird sometimes. So, you know, my mom's told me like, don't, does you see a van? I don't know why they're always in a van. Why can't they drive a car? But what is it? see a van. And they got puppies and video games and candy. That's bad. I'm like, that doesn't sound bad. Nothing sound bad. Well, sin doesn't sound bad, does it? Like, it sounds good or else we wouldn't do it. So, 
And it's not just for kids. I remember one time I was at a gas station and a guy said, will you buy my gas? I was like, sure, I'll buy your gas. And he goes, come over here on the side of the thing. I'm like, nah, not doing that. <laughs> That's what sin does though. It looks good. And it can isolate you and get you away. Get you away from the truth, get you away from the Lord. John chapter 10, we quote, he came, we could have life, we could have it abundantly, that's awesome. It also says that you have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. Isolation leads to deception. You start having conversations in your own head that aren't true about people, about God, about the church, about whatever. But you got, you're convinced. You have convinced you. <laughs> yeah, isolation leads to deception, and deception leads to destruction. And Jesus confronts sin, not because he's trying to condemn you. He's going to cleanse you. If you want a, a verse to go with what I've just shared with you, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1, uh, we'll put up on the screen. I believe that we have that one. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1 says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Whoever, not just believers. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Oftentimes we do this, whether we state it out loud or not, because we know what we're about to do is not a good idea. And Jesus he comes to cleanse. In fact, Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, Jesus' first sermon that he preaches at his hometown synagogue, um, leading a trip next year to the Holy Land, and, and we go to the cliff that they took him to to kill him after he preached the sermon. He didn't die. He's a bad dude. I don't know how he did it. But he preaches this. It's just a quote, really, from Isaiah chapter 60. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So this is why he came. He sent me to proclaim liberty, that's another word for freedom, to the captives. And so I want you to think, imagine for yourself, what would it be like to actually be a prisoner? Some of you have been in jail. Most of you have not, to my knowledge at least. Um, and by the way, that's another problem we have. And I'm just going to rant here. I'm sorry. But here's the deal. In uh, Raleigh, one of the reasons why many of you struggle with a passion for Jesus is because you don't realize the weight of your forgiveness. And that is because we sin cleanly here. And the reason why, I'm not just, I'll, just, I'll go back and give you a little bit of history on this for me and why I'm saying this. I remember the first benevolence uh, opportunity. And benevolence is when people come to the church because they need help with their rent or groceries or different things like that. They need some financial help, like medical stuff. The first benevolent situation we had at Southbridge uh, just to give you some of my context too. I, I come from Flint, Michigan. It's one of the poorest cities in our country. This is not a poor city, Raleigh. Okay, just so you know. The person pulled up in a BMW. I self-righteously thought to myself, you're coming for benevolence? Sell your car. But we helped him. And I told you, like, a lot of times Jesus is doing spiritual things, but people are stuck on an earthly level. It took me probably a decade to look back and go, oh, you are showing me how to be a good missionary here in the city because we're really good at making stuff look good on the outside and we don't want anybody knowing what's really going on. And so I'm not saying that nobody here uh, goes to the red light district, but it's a lot more popular to hop on Tinder. I'm not saying there aren't heroin addicts um, in our church because there are uh, people that have been healed from that, freed from that, but there are a lot more people that get their pills online. There are alcoholics. There's a lot more people that are workaholics and we'll praise that. And we can condemn adultery, but we'll gossip like nobody's business. Gluttony? Oh, come on, bring it on. Seconds, supersize that one. Third, yeah, I'm on it. And we'll joke about it. It's clean sin. So we don't know the weight of our forgiveness because that's for those other people that don't sin like the Raleighites. Okay. So imagine you're imprisoned to your sin. 
and, and to help you word picture this, uh, there's a war right now between the Ukraine and Russia. I believe that probably everybody here knows that. Uh, did you see, though, it depends on what your political bents are and what agenda channels you're watching. They're all doing it. Uh, or if you're just going to some places to try and get real news. And uh, there was the biggest prisoner swap of the war in September, September 22nd. The war's been going on since February. It was a big deal then. All of our prices go up. We stopped talking about it. Okay, so it doesn't fit your political agenda anymore. Got it. And, but what happened was there were 300 people that were exchanged, 215 Ukrainians. They were Russian prisoners of war. They were given back to the Ukraine, 55. So if you think there's good guys and bad guys, there's a lot of bad guys, by the way. Uh, there's 55 uh, Russian prisoners that the Ukraine had. They gave back. Also some foreigners, two Americans, one from the Army, one from the Marines, uh, a Swedish uh, national uh, person. There was a Croatian, a Moroccan, two Brits. Um, these aren't all soldiers, by the way. Uh, four of the people that were released are pregnant women. And so there's different folks that are imprisoned. Um, the United Nations, I'm not trying to like speculate on stuff here, the United Nations is investigating both countries for war crimes because of the way that they, they, we know they're torturing each other. The way they're torturing them and so they've got evidence that Russia, when you arrive as a prisoner of war for them, are putting all of their soldiers in a line. You go through a gauntlet, they beat you senseless. And some of them have been here for six months, seven months. Uh, they have tuberculosis and all kinds of different uh, terrible diseases. And so imagine being in that situation. Oh, um, the two Brits and uh, the Moroccan guy were told in June that they were going to be killed. So they've been sentenced to death. Imagine you're in a prison cell. So whether you're one of the pregnant moms or you're a soldier, foreigner, Ukrainian, whoever you are, they've been beating you, probably not feeding you well, you know you're going to be killed. They come to get you, they put you on a bus, they drive you to a northern city in the Ukraine, a video of this actually taking place, and they swap you with another person. Can you imagine walking past the person who, because they're going here, you're getting your freedom? What happened in the Bible? The end of John the part that a lot of Jewish people think, well, this is why it's anti-Jewish. Uh, there was a guy, his name was Pilate, and he worked for Rome. But the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, and they can't because Rome won't let them, and Rome actually rules them, even though they think they're in control. And so they go to Pilate and say, kill this guy. Pilate comes out and says, he's innocent. Exact quote in John chapter 19, we put the verse on the screen, I find no guilt in this man. Then the chief priest, the leaders in the religion of that time, say, crucify him, crucify him. They get the crowd chanting, crucifixion. We know that there was a guy who was in prison who was a known insurrectionist. His name was Barabbas. His cell would not have been far from Pilate's palace. He can probably hear those people chanting, crucify him. He knows he's been sentenced to be crucified. I don't know if he's been beaten by Rome, but what we know of Rome, he's probably been beaten. He's been beaten. He's told he's going to a cross. They come to his cell and they set him free. <laughs> Wouldn't you wonder, who's the guy going to my cross? And then he sees, it's the king of the Jews. They put the name king of the Jews on the top of the cross. And Pilate says he didn't do any sin. Who's this guy? And then three days later, he's back. Uh oh. But see, that's what happened for you. You might not know the weight of your sin. It doesn't mean your sin isn't weighty. It cost Jesus his life. That was your cross. The gospel is that he's your substitute. He became sin who knew no sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. You're not righteous. No one is. I don't even need to know your name or whether you'll ever come back to this church. You're not righteous. No one is apart from Christ. And the only way you become righteous is you repent. You can't be a Christian if you haven't repented. That means you turn to Christ. That means you have to feel the weight of your sin. And the weight of your sin comes not because of how naughty your stuff is. 
because of how holy God is. And so the holiness of God determines the depth of your forgiveness, not how bad you think you've been in comparison to whoever else you compare yourself to. It's his holiness you're compared to, and none are righteous, no, not one. And while we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he gives us a gift, the gift of God. What you've earned is death, separation from God, a cross. But he gives you himself. And when you receive that forgiveness, that's the fuel for the heart of worship, the worship in spirit, the worship in truth is that you really have him. The heart is the passion for him. You lack passion, and think about the weight of your sin. But I'm not that bad. Oh, maybe you're like those people that he said, Matthew chapter five, verse eight, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then verse 9 says, they worship me in vain. Oh, hold up. If Louis Giglio's right, that, that worship is our response to what we value most, and Jesus saying our worship is worthless, vanity, empty, that's not a true worshiper. Are you? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. If you're online, I'll just say, just take a moment. Maybe get quiet. You got music in the background. Or something. Just listen to this music and just... Just this pause before the Lord. If you need to trust Christ, now's that moment. The invitation is for everyone. I know the road is narrow. I know not a lot of people will take it, but every, anybody can trust Christ. Race, nationality, language, background, clean sin, dirty sin. That's our language, by the way. Anybody can come to Christ. You wanna be cleansed. Uh, he says, turn to him. He is faithful, he is just. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You need to confess to him. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and confess your sin to him. ABC, admit, believe, confess. If you need to do that, you do that right now in your own words. Some of you are followers of Christ. Maybe you've grown cold, or maybe you started to drift. I hope today's a warning. Get back on the path. Get reconnected with people. Maybe get in a small group or start connecting with those people that know you well. God wants to know you fully, to be fully known and fully loved, and he wants you to experience that with other people and help other people experience that through you. It might be family, neighbors, friends. He's got the divine appointments where you have to meet with those people. Let him work that out. Are you willing? Are you ready? Do not isolate yourself. Father, we come before you and we want to let you know that that we believe you are worthy. So we'll say some words in a minute in a song. I pray that our affections, our attention, our money, our time would point to the same direction that these words do. And before I say amen, I'll just say to you, however the Lord might be leading you to respond, you know, Pastor Bryce will have us stand up here in just a second. We're going to sing a song and don't rush out to get lunch. We got hot dogs for you. We'll take care of you. Clear the parking lot. If you need to get out faster than anybody else, let us know. We'll figure it out. But if you need to talk to the Lord, continue to do that. Stay seated. If you want to sing out this song because you're excited about who Jesus is and who maybe he's revealed or reminded you of something today of who he is and pulled the curtain back and you need to praise him, you sing these words. If you want to pray with somebody, go to one of the walls, right or left, it doesn't matter. One of our elders, pastors, deacons, deaconesses will come and meet with you, prayer counselors. 
pray with you. You want healing, physical healing. You're tired. You need some help. You actually need some tangible help. You want to talk with someone, then there's that. You just want to come in the front, kneel at the stairs and pray. Just you and Jesus. Nobody will mess with you. You can do that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.